One of the things I love about First Baptist Church is that you are so willing to get outside the walls and get into the community and help in the lives of people. You know, faith doesn't do a whole lot of good just sitting behind stained glass windows and singing. And you don't do that. You get out and involved in the lives of people, helping, meeting needs where you can. So thank you, those of you being a part of Code Cares and other ministries that we have that get outside the walls of the church. This morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Flight attendants, prepare for landing. Whenever you're flying, about 20 minutes before you land, you hear that come over the intercom. The pilot telling the flight attendants to take their place on the jump seat, make sure their seat belts are fastened because in about 20 minutes you're going to be sitting down. As we approach the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus about to close, he, he begins to land the plane in chapter 7, verse 13. Whenever he says, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and easy is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate, and hard is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. So whenever he made that statement, he was basically telling the flight attendants, prepare for landing. And then, as you're flying, the flight attendants take their seat, and, and you start to descend, you feel the plane descending, you, you hear the flaps, they'll, they're going down, it starts to steady itself. And then as you approach the runway and you're flying, you feel as you land the jolt. And the final story Jesus gave as he finished the sermon and landed the plane was a jolt. You feel it. Listen to what he said. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. We've been going uh, for about 15 Sundays now, the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And now this morning, we come to the conclusion the very last thing that Jesus said. And we come to the conclusion where Jesus summarized everything he had said from chapters 5, 6, and 7. So let's look at it. First of all, number one, let's look at the conclusion itself. The conclusion of the sermon. The conclusion of any sermon is vitally important to a message. In fact, Charles Spurgeon preached his greatest sermon. Most people say the best sermon he ever preached was on December 5th, 1858, Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. He was preaching through a sermon series, and he preached a, a sermon that Sunday morning entitled, Compel Them to Come In, from, from the book of Luke. 
most people say that was the best sermon Spurgeon ever preached. In fact, Spurgeon himself will tell you, or he did tell you before he died, that was my best sermon. He was 24 years old. And in that sermon, he closed it by saying this. There are two ways you can go in life. Jesus' way or the foolish way. And as Jesus closed the greatest sermon ever preached in the Bible, he said the same thing. You can go one of two ways in life. You can go the Jesus way, or you can go the foolish way. Now, in the preaching classes that I, that I had through the years, I took preaching class in college, I took preaching class in seminary, I've taught preaching classes at Seminary Extension, Lucent University, Dallas Baptist University. And as you're in, in preaching classes, you, you talk about the conclusion of a sermon. And there are several principles that you teach about closing a sermon. One is the conclusion must be brief. Don't start closing and then go 20 more minutes. Brief. Amen. Got an amen this morning. <laughs> be direct. The congregation does not have to, shouldn't have to wonder what, you're, what you want them to do according to the Word. Another one is that the, the conclusion should summarize the message. should be a summary of what you've said. Another principle is that the conclusion of a sermon should be well-crafted. Don't just stop. Conclude. So work hard at crafting your conclusion. Another principle is it should be memorable. As people are leaving the church, they're going to their cars to, to close the day, there should be something in their mind you said at the conclusion that makes them remember the sermon. And there should be specific application. And the final principle is, truly let it be the conclusion, the last thing you say. As I look at all those principles, Jesus did every one masterfully. He was the master communicator. He employed every principle of a powerful conclusion and brought it all together one story. Now, as I read the passage this morning, I noticed two things. First of all, I noticed that there are no imperatives in there. Now, that may not mean a lot to you, but as I start reading a passage, and I'm getting ready to preach on Sunday, I start looking for imperatives, because imperatives are commands. If there's something God has commanded you to do and me to do, I want to know that so I can tell you, here's what He's commanded you to do. That's important. So I always look for imperatives. In this passage, none. He doesn't tell you anything to do. He just gives you an axiom. Here's how things are. And he doesn't tell you one thing to do. He just tells you 
If you live your life this way, this is going to happen. If you live your life that way, that will happen. Very simple. Second thing I noticed. The most important word, probably the most important word in all the passage, is not in there. Because in the ESV, what I read from, the English Standard Version, it begins with the word everyone, but in the original language, it begins with the word un. You'll see it on the screen. The Greek word O-U-N means therefore. How many of you in your passages in your Bible have the word therefore to begin? Yeah, quite a few. Therefore. What does that mean? Well, it goes back to the preceding passage. If you remember in English class, you see a therefore, you ask, what is it there for? Because there's something that went before it that's important. So Jesus is tying the very last story to what he said previous. What did he say previous? If you remember, he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And on that day, there will be people saying, Lord, we preached in your name. We cast out demons. We did many mighty works in your name. We, you know us. And he's saying, depart from me. I never knew you. And you leave from his presence. It's the last thing he said. So then he said, therefore. So he ties today's message with last week's message. And he ties them together. So the final statement all connects. Now look at number two in your outline, hearing and doing. Hearing and doing. Verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, and then he says, everyone who does not hear these words of mine and does not do them. Well, so he's, he's making a distinction between hearing and doing all the way through the Sermon on the Mount Jesus talks about hearing and doing hearing and doing all the way through the Bible he talks about hearing and doing and he says if all you do is hear you're not my followers you have to hear and do this morning you're hearing well, for the most part. You're hearing. But not all of you are doing. Jesus said, you're not blessed if you hear. You're blessed if you do. And there's a difference. Now, what's interesting about this passage is he tells us three key words in verse 24. You'll see them on the screen. The first word is the word everyone. Everyone who hears. In, in Greek it's the word pas. It means each, any, every, the whole, the whole collectively, the whole individually. And so what he's saying is every single person, no exceptions. All the time I have people come up, pastor, you, uh, my case is just a little different. No exceptions. Well, you see, I I think God's going to, he's going to understand my situation. Nope, no exceptions. Everybody. Second word. Who hears? It's the word akuo. 
We get the word acoustics from it. It means to perceive or understand. You see, hearing doesn't take place biblically when sound goes in your ears. That's not hearing. Hearing is when, you, when sound goes in your ears, you perceive what it means, and you understand it. So Jesus is saying, everybody out there, no exceptions, who is hearing and understanding what I just said. And then the third word is does. It's the word poia. In Greek, it means to construct. It means to fashion. It means to make something. So Jesus is saying, every single person out there who understands what I just said and fashions something out of it is the life built on the rock. Because, folks, the bottom line is there are some people, they understand what Jesus has said. They just don't do it. The life that's blessed, the rock, is the one who hears, understands, and does. Now, what's interesting in this passage, Jesus picked up a thread that he spoke earlier, verses 15 to 20, chapter 7. It's like he dropped a thread there, and then later on he comes back and he picks up the thread and he starts to weave it into the conclusion. And that thread was, you will know them by their fruits. So, Jesus said earlier, you'll not know a person just by looking at them if they're a follower or not. Just because you go to church doesn't mean you're a follower. Just because you try to be good doesn't mean you're a Jesus follower. You'll know Jesus followers by what comes out of their life, fruit. So, he picks up that thread, and now he starts to weave it into the conclusion. And he says, how do you produce fruit? Simple. He said, my words. My words produce fruit. Simple. So we produce fruit, things that come out of our life that resembles Christ, when we take his words and put them into practice. We don't produce fruit by going to church. We don't produce fruit by trying to be good. We don't produce fruit by being kind to our neighbor. We produce fruit by taking his words, what he said, and doing them. Now, a lot of people today, well, I I don't know about the Bible. I don't know if I believe all that. That's that's a little outdated. I mean, we're progressive as a culture, you know. That's, That's a little outdated. It's his words. So when you take his words, he said, That's what produces fruit. And then he said this. And one day, whenever you stand before me in judgment, all that's going to matter is your foundation. Not how you look. Your foundation. And any foundation not founded upon my words will crumble. You know, you have to take Jesus' words and do them. And whenever you do, the foundation is laid. 
And to illustrate this, Jesus closed his sermon by telling a story of two builders. Number three on your outline, let's look at them, verses 24 to 27, the two builders. Jesus said there was first a builder, a wise man, built his house upon rock. And after he built the house, the, the rains came and the floods came. In fact, the Greek language puts it this way as it's originally written, fell the rain and came the floods and blew the wind and beat the house. But because it was founded on a rock, it stood strong. And there was a second builder who built his house on sand. And came the rains and came the floods and blew the wind and beat the house. It fell because it was founded on sand. Two men, two builders, two houses, two foundations, one storm, one left. You know, something that really struck me as I read this passage was, did you notice that the exact same storm came to both houses? The same one. I mean the exact wording. And what that tells me is the life founded upon Christ is going to have a storm, and the life founded without Christ is going to have a storm. Sometimes we hear preachers preach, oh, if you just come to Jesus, life will be great and you'll never have any more problems. That's a lie. I've even heard preachers say, just come to Christ, things will be better and you won't have as many problems. Tell believers in Afghanistan that. You have more problems sometimes. The exact same storm. Jewish rabbi, a while back, wrote a book. You probably remember it. One of bad things happened to good people. Newsflash, bad things happen to both good and bad people. We're not exempt. We get the exact same problems in life non-believers have. It's just our foundation's different. So it rains on the just and the unjust. You're going to have problems. Either way, the storm's coming. The difference is the foundation. Now, this is interesting about both houses. Both houses look the same. The difference was not in the house. It's not that one was built with superior buildings materials. It's not that one was built by a better architect. It's not that one was built with superior design to withhold storms. They're both the same. They both have the same design. They have the same architect. They have the same building supplies. Everything's the same except foundation. Only difference. And the Bible calls the builder who built on sand, did you notice what he called him? Foolish. You're a fool, he says. If you build on sand, if you build your life 
on anything but Christ? You're a fool. Now, the word foolish there in, in Greek is interesting. It's the word moros, M-O-R-O-S, and we get the word moron from it. The word does not mean unintelligent. It doesn't mean you're stupid. The word moros means lack of foresight. Moros literally means unplanning. Doesn't, you mean, doesn't mean you're not intelligent. It means you don't plan. So sitting here this morning, knowing one day you're going to die and stand before God and you're not ready for it, that's foolish. Foolish. That's what he's saying. Moros. That's the builder on sand. What you see here is perspective determines priority. What does that mean? One builder said, you know, it's really important to build my house on rock. And the other builder said, you know, as long as I build a good house, it doesn't matter the foundation, I'm going to build on sand. The perspective of each determined the priority. One was right and one was dead wrong. So your perspective is the same. Oh, pastor, I don't think it's that important to go to church. I I don't think it's that important to build my life upon Christ. I don't think it's that important to read the Bible. I don't think it's that important to to take the principles in here and actually apply them to my life. It's not that important. Foolish one. Unplanning one. It is important. Some of you have probably been to um, a little town in Italy on the coast, the country of Tuscany, the the region of Tuscany, at the mouth of the Arnon River. There's a little town there called Pisa, P-I-S-A. And you probably have seen the, the bell tower at the Pisa Cathedral. There are three towers. One of them is unique. One of them is 183 feet high, 8 feet thick walls. It weighs almost 15,000 tons. And they started building this structure in August of 1173. They were going to build eight stories. They got up to the fifth story and something happened. It started to lean. And they thought, hmm... That's not good. We have three more stories. So they stopped building for 100 years. They had to fight a war too, but they stopped building for 100 years. 100 years later, 1264, they took up construction again, trying to somehow get this leaning building back straight. So the upper floors, the three upper floors, were built with one side taller to compensate for the tilt. So now it's curved. But the tower continued to lean. And by 1990, the tower had leaned five and a half degrees, which is 15 feet to the south. Here's a picture of it. 
course, you know the Leaning Tower of Pisa. How on earth does that stay up? They stabilized it back in 2000, and it kind of helped the degree. It's at 3.9 now instead of 5.5. But I wondered, why is the tower leaning? So I Googled it. Why is the Leaning Tower of Pisa leaning? The foundation. One reason. You see, in 1173, when they started building, they only went 10 feet down. Not nearly a deep enough foundation for a structure that size. And the soil that they built upon was very poor quality and very unstable. It was a mixture of clay, shells, limestone, and sand. And so it started to lean. And the tower started to compact the soil until it found the weakest point, and it began to go that way. And I've seen a lot of lives built just like the tower in Pisa. Your foundation's shallow. Your soil is unstable and not very good quality is what you're pouring into your life. And you begin to tilt. And you're wondering how to get it back. Some of you topple all the way over. Ramjack Foundation, you know Ramjack. The Ramjack Foundation, 50 businesses nationwide, say if you live in Texas and you're building a house, two things. You've got to have a deep foundation and it better be built on bedrock. Because the Texas soil shifts. And when I saw that, I thought, wow, Ram Jack is preaching a sermon. <laughs> They're right. If you live in Texas and you're building a life, build your foundation deep. And build it on good soil. Right here. Otherwise, the ground shifts a lot in Texas. And finally, the results, number four. The results. So the wise builder built on rock. Rains came, floods came, winds blew, beat on the house. And Jesus said that house stood firm. It's on a rock. And the other house, Jesus said, built on sand, looked good. But the rain came and the winds blew and beat on the house. It fell. And it fell hard. So it's not how you look outwardly. It's what your foundation's like. The strength of your house is not how you look. It's what's underneath. Now, here comes the final word. He's preached for three chapters, and now Jesus closes, and the very last word he says is, Megalos! Great! 
Now, in our English, it says, and great was the fall of it. But in Greek, when you take the word great and you put it at the very end of the sentence, it strengthens it. It empowers it. It's for emphasis. And so Jesus was emphasizing the fall. Very last thing he said was emphasizing great. Megalos, the house, fell, crashed. Close the sermon. So everything was the same with both houses, so the results were very stark, catastrophic, in fact. So here's a summary of what Jesus said. All three chapters, entire sermon wrapped up in this. If you hear my words and understand what I said and do it, you're in a good place. But if you hear everything I just said and don't do it, you're a fool. When Jesus calls you a fool, you're a fool. You see, in this sermon, Jesus said there's no middle ground. There's no, well, I prayed to receive Jesus when I was seven. I'm not living like it now. I know I need to. Well, I'm a believer, but I don't live like one. Well, there's no middle ground. Jesus said, you're hearing and doing. You're not. And that's how he closed If you fly into Osaka, Japan, and you land at the Osaka airport, it's called the Kensai International Airport, it's really cool. You see, land is at a premium in Japan, so they built the airport two miles out into the ocean, Osaka Harbor. And so you're landing on an artificial island that's just the airport. It's really pretty cool. And you land there, and whenever you land, you're landing at one of the most high-tech airports in the world. It's really cool. They built it in 1994. And so you're landing there, and, and the airport's fabulous. It, it, is the, it has the longest terminal. Terminal's a little over a mile long. Voted number one terminal of all the airports in the world in 2020. Also in 2020, it was voted the best airport staff to wait on you. All the airports around the world, Kensai International's number one. It was also voted number one in baggage handling. Their baggage handlers are better than anywhere in the world. Kensai International Airports, that's a good airport. Millions of people a year fly in there. There's one problem. The airport is sinking into the bay. It's sinking. Built it in 1994, and it started to sink almost immediately. And from 1994 till now, it has sunk 40 feet. Great airport. <laughs> it's just sinking. Why? Well, if you go 59 feet below the airport onto the seabed... The seabed is made of clay. 
So when they started construction of the airport, they placed on top of the clay layer after layer of sand. <laughs> and they took two and a half million poles, 16 inch in diameter, and they sturdied the entire airport with 2.2 million poles. And in every pole, 16 inch diameter, they filled it with sand and they took the poles and they pounded it into the clay seabed. It's not going to go anywhere now, but it's still built on sand. It started to sink. Here's a picture of it. See the runways to the left full of water? That's not good. That's not good at all. Those are the runways covered in water. Now, this was after a storm, to be fair, heavy rains, but it's sinking. And folks, in your life, you can have the best of everything. The best airport staff, the best baggage handlers, the best house, the best car, the best family. But if your foundation's sand, you're sunk. Father, I want to thank you today for your word. You spoke it powerfully to us in three chapters, Matthew 6, 7, 5, 6, 7. And Lord, it is, it's my prayer that as we've looked at it, you've been honored and you've spoken to us. God, I realize today there are a lot of lives here that are they're built on sand. They look good. Look like they have it together. But the foundation's wrong. And so Lord, it is my prayer that today will be the day that you help us to set the foundation of Christ. Lord, I know there are probably people here and people watching online that there's never been a time in their life they have repented of their sins and submitted their life to you. I mean, genuinely did it. Knew what they were doing. And so, Lord, I, I pray that today will be the day they do that and they begin to build on the rock. Because one day when they face you, they're going to need a rock the rock of Christ. So, Father, today, give us the courage it will take to make those decisions public. In Jesus' name.